Today and in the months to come, we are celebrating the 150th anniversary of the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, a momentous milestone. What started as a 300-person corps of countrymen on horseback has grown to a world-renowned organization of more than 30,000 employees from all places, backgrounds, and experiences. As the Alberta RCMP, we have the privilege of providing policing services in urban and rural municipalities, in First Nations and Métis settlements, and in remote areas across this province. Whether it be civilian employees working in units throughout our organization, special tactical teams in the field, or the officers and employees living and working in your communities, you are what drives each and every one of us to uphold the safety and well-being of Alberta. RCMP 150. RCMP 150. RCMP 150. Today, in honor of uh, the 150th anniversary of the RCMP, we've gathered all of our employees from public service employees, civilian members, regular members, volunteers, you name it, they're all here. We gathered on the bridge. Uh, we've got members from all different sections and units in the RCMP and just here to celebrate uh, the anniversary of the force. I think what we're doing is honoring our past uh, seeing where we've come from, how we've evolved, how we've developed over the years, how we've continued to meet the ever-increasing uh, needs of our communities, but we're also looking forward to the future about where we can take the force uh, and how we can better serve Canadians. Warning, this podcast covers issues of police-related brutality, racialized violence, sexual abuse and criminality it may be disturbing to some listeners in case it wasn't obvious 2023 marks the 150th anniversary of canada's national police force an iconic institution that started out as the northwest mounted police became the royal northwest mounted police and then transformed into the royal canadian mounted police the rcmp and just in time for summer tourism season, you can expect to see RCMP members dressed in their iconic Red Surge. The Red Surge is the dress uniform of the RCMP, which consists of military-style red tunic, a high-neck collar, and blue pants with a yellow stripe down the side. On the RCMP 150 website, you can also find a list of celebratory events from parades and barbecues to horse races and the musical ride. There's even, get this, a Meet the Mountie Day. Yet, you don't see much hoopla on the ground in our communities, or in the national media for that matter, and understandably so. This anniversary comes on the heels of numerous RCMP scandals and failures, from billion-dollar class actions by female RCMP officers for sexual abuse and sexual harassment by male RCMP officers, to critical failures on the ground, which contributed to the mass casualty in Portapique, Nova Scotia. Not to mention their role in the crisis of murdered and missing Indigenous women and girls, either as the RCMP who failed to properly investigate the disappearances and murders, or as the perpetrators of sexualized violence themselves. 
RCMP are not very popular these days, but were they ever? Hi, my name is Dr. Pam Palmer, and I am the host of this podcast, Criminals on Patrol, where we expose criminality, corruption, and cover-ups in policing. I'm an Indigenous lawyer, professor, and author on a quest to expose what goes on behind the thin blue line of policing in a push for transparency, accountability, and radical change. Our first target, or excuse me, I should say season, focuses on the Royal Canadian Mounted Problem. In our last episode, we asked the question, were the RCMP and its earlier iterations of the Northwest Mounted Police friends to Native peoples? Or were the RCMP enforcers in the colonial project to get rid of the Indian problem once and for all? In episode two, A Colonial Past, we will start our investigation into the RCMP as a force by diving into the historical research and consulting with the experts. I also contacted the RCMP before creating this season, requesting an interview on all of the subjects that we'll cover in this podcast, but they declined to participate. So in fairness, I'll make sure that their voices are included through publicly available information. So let's jump right into it. This year marks 150 years since the creation of Canada's National Police Force. Established by an Act of Parliament on May 23, 1873, Canada's first National Police Force was created for the preservation of peace and the prevention of crime. Originally called the Northwest Mounted Police, the force evolved over the years, becoming what we now know today as the Royal Canadian Mounted Police in 1920. We are an organization of dedicated people proud of our accomplishments, rich in history, tradition, and culture, and we continue to evolve. We acknowledge the mistakes of our past and are using them to drive positive change for the future. Today, with its Vision 150 plan, the RCMP makes a new pledge to become a more modern, inclusive, and healthy organization, one that builds trust and confidence. And we pledge to do all this while continuing to fulfill our primary mandate of keeping people safe. That was officer in charge of Richmond RCMP, Chief Superintendent Dave Shohan in a promotional video on RCMP TV. Yes, in fact, they have their own YouTube channel called RCMP TV. Much like Deputy Commissioner Curtis Sablocki, commanding officer of Alberta RCMP's comments in the opening clip, it's clear the RCMP are promoting the idea that its organization has a history in which we can all be proud and that their sole purpose has always been our collective safety. But given all the bad press over the last few decades, I thought I should seek out the perspectives of some historical experts to give me a better insight into the RCMP's colonial past in the hopes that it might tell us something about what they're up to today or if they have a future. One of those experts is Dr. Sean Carlton, an assistant professor in the departments of history and indigenous studies at the University of Manitoba. He has his bachelor's and master's in history from Simon Fraser University, and he got his PhD from Trent University. 
Dr. Carlton has numerous scholarly articles on Canada's colonial history and a new book from UBC Press called Lessons in Legitimacy, Colonialism, Capitalism, and the Rise of State Schooling in British Columbia. He is a well-known historical expert, and you've all likely seen or heard him in the media commenting on Canada's colonial history and settler-Indigenous relations. I rely on his research in my own work and agree with his political analysis on many of the issues facing Canada. So I asked him, what's up with RCMP 150? Should we be commemorating them? This sort of feels like the RCMP version of copaganda to me. Are they truly heroes on horses, deserved of their iconic status in Canada's history? Well, this is what Dr. Carlton had to say. Well, I mean, as a historian, I think it's important for Canadians to understand the role of, well, first the Northwest Mounted Police and then the RCMP uh, as a colonial paramilitary force in its historical context. And commemorations are always times to reflect on history and understand the deeper history that is there. And so I think the 150 anniversary uh, of, of the RCMP is a great time to kind of grapple with some of these pressing questions. Um, and I think it's important not to have any illusions also about uh, the law and the role of police in particular, right? To, to buy into the mythologies uh, that we see about the Mounties as sort of do-gooder, red-coated riders of the plains, bringing law and order to the West that we see in like, you know, I, I grew up in the 90s and there was this show with Paul Gross called Do South. And it was like a, a do-gooder Mountie going to Chicago, I think, and he, you know, would play up the stereotype of the Mounties. And I think that, that kind of pop culture um, perception of the Mounties really skews the history, right? It, it allows people to not really understand the, the more complicated origins of the force, uh, that the job that they were created to do, right, to play more correctly, is serving and protecting the interests of colonialism and capitalist accumulation in Canada. And I think this is also an important time because this has been made very clear, actually, in, in recent years, right? With the series of raids in un unceded wooden territory, right? The RCMP raids of Wet'suwet'en uh, land defenders in northwestern British Columbia in 2020 left many Canadians, I think, rightly shocked and angered. And that's pretty much what I've heard too, and what I've found in the research that I've done. Social media is literally full of Canadians expressing shock at the videos they see of heavily armed RCMP officers looking like SWAT teams or military forces moving in on unarmed, peaceful Indigenous land defenders with dogs and snipers, helicopters and armed vehicles. How on earth did we get here? Is this the RCMP gone rogue or the RCMP doing what they were created to do? So these images of the RCMP dressed in camo gear and armed with automatic rifles arresting unarmed Indigenous peoples clash with that popular mythology of the Mounties, right? And that stark contrast between galloping Mounties of the musical ride and the militarized police force sent in to be the muscle for an energy company has led a number of Canadians in recent years to view the RCMP in a different light. And so the 150 anniversary and these recent events, I think are colliding at a time where it's a, a good time to really look into this history 
and, and reconsider the future of the forest, right? History proves that the mythology of the Mounties doesn't hold up, right? Far from uh, a sort of one-off event, the RCMP's operation in Minnesota territory is part of an ongoing pattern of police and military units being used by governments in Canada to suppress Indigenous resistance and clear the way for continued capitalist accumulation by colonial dispossession. So we really need to take this opportunity to understand that history and look more deeply into the origins of the force, to understand these recent events, not as an anomaly, but as, as part of this ongoing pattern of, of police violence, and uh, that these really shouldn't be seen as uh, aberrations, but as rather something that the force has always been doing since its founding in the 1870s. I think that's exactly it. So many Canadians have been educated to believe in the mythology that they can't process the reality right before their very eyes. Dr. Carlton pointed out that the RCMP as an institution goes beyond that of a police force simply created to keep settlers safe. There appears to be other interests at play. So the Northwest Mounted Police then get renamed the Royal Northwest Mounted Police in 1904 and then the RCMP in 1920. So there's that kind of continuity. And my argument is that from the beginning, right, they continue to play that role as serving and protecting Canada's capitalist status quo. And sometimes the police get, we talk about the Department of Indian Affairs, we talk about Indian agents, we talk about church officials um, and their involvement in Indigenous communities as agents of colonization. But whether we're calling them the Northwest Mounted Police or the RCMP, depending on the historical time period, they also need to be understood in what I call the church-state police partnership. In, in really policing settler capitalism and ensuring that it continues. Um, and so I think from the origins to, you know, the ongoing relationship here, it's not just the early days of the Northwest Mounted Police, but the force has also been used for a variety of other things, not just um, war and conflict, but signing treaties, ensuring after the War of 1885 that the past system which restricted mobility for Indigenous communities was enforced. They worked with the Indian agents to restrict that mobility, also to separate communities so that they couldn't organize and resist ongoing colonization. Please play that particular uh, role. But their role of surveilling, right, it also continues. They were very active in surveilling Red Loft, one of the founders of the League of Indians, uh, after the First World War, right, they were very concerned about Indigenous political organizing. And then other things, like I, I don't think there has been enough written about the RCMP and their role acting as truant officers, taking children to residential and day schools, which I talk about in my work, arresting parents who refuse to send children to these government-funded schools or church-run schools. Or one of the examples that I look at is residential school burnings or arsons, right? The goal of the RCMP was not to investigate why children as young as eight would want to burn down their school to escape. The history of the RCMP is much darker than we've been led to believe, that the world has been led to believe. Like Dr. Carlton said, this is exactly the time during RCMP 150 celebrations to really reflect on the link between the RCMP's colonial past 
and its colonial present. In our last episode, you heard a clip from Dr. James Daschuk, who is a well-respected professor at the University of Regina with a PhD in history, also from the University of Manitoba. His book, Clearing the Plains, Disease, Politics of Starvation, and the Loss of Aboriginal Life, published by the University of Regina Press in 2013, was named one of the 25 most influential Canadian books of the last 25 years. It also won the Governor General's Medal for Scholarly Research in 2014. This book contains some very important history that we were not taught in school. His research has also informed my ongoing work in this area. When I spoke to him, Dr. Daschuk seemed to suggest that the predecessor of the RCMP, the Northwest Mounted Police, were friends to First Nations. And I have to admit, I had one eyebrow raised when I heard this. Friends? I mean, after everything Dr. Carlton said, could we be looking at two conflicting historical counts of the RCMP here? So I decided to dig deeper and ask what Dr. Daschuk meant by this. I talked to him about the Northwest Mounted Police and their transition into the RCMP and their role in the colonization of what would become Canada. Were they friend or foe? The Northwest Mounted Police switched over to the Royal Canadian Mounted Police into the 20th century. I think it was 1920, 1921, something like that. The Northwest Mounted Police came west, I actually think, as a force for good. In the aftermath of the Rupert's Land transfer, there was a jurisdictional vacuum. The Hudson's Bay Company had run basically the territory north of the 49th parallel as a quasi-government, as a monopoly government, probably for 50 years. When Rupert's Land was transferred or when the land shifted over to Canada, there were still no treaties at this point. There were almost no Canadian officials in what is now prairies north of the 49th parallel. American whiskey traders moved into it's a tappy Blackfoot country and uh, we're truly running roughshod. Like there are umpteen cases of, of violence of, I don't know, like to think of the whiskey traders as like the moral fiber of the Medellin drug cartel. Uh, probably the uh, turning point in this was what is known as the Cypress Hills Massacre. There was a large number of Nakota people who were killed by whiskey traders. And to settle the uh, scandal back in, in, in Eastern Canada, the Northwest Mounted Police was organized and they made a march west and it was truly a comedy of errors. They weren't prepared for anything. But that was really the first presence of uh, Canadian authority to speak of outside of Winnipeg. Uh, the militia, the British Army had occupied Winnipeg in the aftermath of the Red River resistance. But out here in Saskatchewan and Alberta, the police were probably the first representatives of Canadian authority of the British Empire, all that stuff. And they shut down the whiskey trade almost overnight. They were probably only I don't know, 270, 300 Mounties at first. The Mounties, I honestly think that for the first decade of their tenure here in the West, they were, from what the documents say, had good relations with First Nations people. They were involved in the treaty negotiations in Treaty 7 territory. They handed out treaty payments in American dollars, interestingly enough. And even in the time of the famine, I just mentioned the depopulation of the Cypress Hills, Fort Walsh, which is a Northwest Mounted Police Post in the Cypress Hills, was the Humanitarian Aid Center. And in 1882-83, 2,500, 3,000 people were dependent on the Mounties for rations. The Mounties, I think, provided rations in good faith. 
where the turning point was. In 1883, as that railway program is moving west, the responsibility for the Northwest Mounted Police shifted from the Department of the Interior to the Department of Indian Affairs. What that meant was that Indian Department officials were now the authority over the police. And there are documents that show that the police were not happy about this because they understood just how, uh, how draconian the Indian Department was running things. So given this history, I asked him, how did the Northwest Mounted Police go from allegedly being friends to First Nations to breaking the law, trapping Indians on reserve, and shooting and hanging Native people? In other words, how did they go from helping to hurting? Maybe this is the process of colonialism, of establishing a settler colonial state. But like I said, for the first decade, there were good relations. Like All the written accounts report that Indigenous people respected the police. And like I said, the police were not happy about withholding rations. And here's another example. Okay, I just mentioned Fort Walsh, Humanitarian Aid Centre. There's a history park there now. Okay. In the winter of 1882-83, in fact, it was New Year's Eve 1882, the chief whose English name is Big Bear, the last significant holdout from treaty, came to Fort Walsh, basically said, like, you guys win, where do I put my mark on treaty? Big Bear's granddaughter had just died of starvation. Big Bear was provided with food, his community was provided with food, and told to march north. Over the course of the winter and spring, the police were ordered to dismantle Fort Walsh. And like I said, that was a humanitarian center of humanitarian aid. They were ordered to dismantle Fort Walsh and rebuild it at Maple Creek on the railway pro like on the railway project to protect the railway from indigenous people. So if you want to think of a switch in roles and switch in responsibilities, that's it in, in three or four months. The Mounties went from being the advocates of First Nations people to being, I guess, the agents of their oppression. Okay, at this point, I had a hard time wrapping my head around this super quick transition. Literally, in the matter of a few months, the Northwest Mounted Police went from serving in a protective capacity for Indigenous peoples, protecting them against lawless whiskey traders, to quickly turning against Indigenous peoples in order to facilitate colonization, apparently at any cost, killings, hangings, withholding rations, enforcing the past system, forced relocations, residential schools, and so on. So I asked Dr. Daschuk, how, how could this be? As the settler state, if you will, is being set up, is being established, as, as the past system is being imposed, and again, the police did not at first want to impose the past system, but they did. They obeyed their orders. As society, as I guess Canadian settler society took hold, the role of the police certainly changed, right? And here's just an example, I guess, in a physical level. Sexually transmitted diseases were very rare among police officers. By 1884, 132 of 557 police officers were on sick call from sexually transmitted diseases. Their officers were so upset about this they were talking about charging the officers for their medical care, right? So think about the shift from advocate, again, to oppressor, right? And there's probably new people who are coming as Northwest Mounted Police. There are new officers arriving because that original crew of officers 
either aged out, would have taken on different roles, or gone back to Ontario and Quebec or wherever they might have come from. Documented several <laughs> accounts of rations being withheld. In fact, one that comes to mind is at Poundmaker First Nation near Battleford. The agent has said rations have been withheld for 41 days. Everyone's off hunting because you like can't subsist on nothing, right? So I guess as the system, as that society takes hold, people just forget, possibly forget the humanity. But the withholding of rations, the sexually, I was going to say impropriety, sexual violence, okay, all of those things were not government policy. I think what they were an example or a representation of how much power each individual person in authority had over entire communities, right? There was no stopgap. There were no checks and balances. In fact, uh, in, in the aftermath of the resistance of 1885, there were a whole bunch of parliamentary committees, Senate committees, and that kind of thing. And there were a number of Indian department officials who were either reprimanded or fired outright for, like, and I guess is using old school terminology, keeping two women in their house, doing, like, just taking total advantage of the situation. And I think the lesson for us is, in a situation where there's no reins on power, where there's no checks and balances, there's going to be a small percentage of humanity that's going to take total advantage of it. So, you know, it wasn't all of the officials, but certainly yeah. some of them. Okay, I can understand that this wasn't law per se. And I can also understand that it wasn't done by every single person. But was it sanctioned by people in authority? At what point does it become unofficial policy? So clearly, if some people were being fired, but some were not, how do we know what was sanctioned and what wasn't? How much did Sir John A. Macdonald, Canada's first Prime Minister, know about all of this? That's the thing. This is not government policy, even though, for example, I, I, I can think of Macdonald, Macdonald, McDonald signed, I wouldn't say McDonald wrote the annual reports of the Department of Indian Affairs that went into the sessional papers, but he signed them off. And I can think of one instance, I think it was 1883, uh, at a farm near Edmonton, he praises, I think it's Indian agent Anderson or farm instructor Anderson, for re-curing bacon that had gone bad. So he re-smoked rancid bacon, and he's kind of complimenting him on his economy, right? So he knew what was going on even though it wasn't official policy. So this, this is the one bad apple example, right? But that there's, there's no reins on the apples. But from the time of the treaties with the decline and people didn't lose their health, they had their health taken away from them. Like that's like, you'd have to be blind not to see that. There has never been a time in 140 years where health outcomes of First Nations people here in Saskatchewan or anywhere else have been equal to settlers, right? So the imposition, say, of the past system, that institutionalized poverty. All right, so let's look at the timeline. Canada was established in 1867. Six years later, the Northwest Mounted Police was established in 1873. Three years later, the Indian Act was enacted in 1876. In 1904, King Edward confers the title of Royal to the Northwest Mounted Police, making them the Royal Northwest Mounted Police. And finally, the Royal Northwest Mounted Police became the RCMP in 1920. 
That's 150 years of the RCMP in Canada. So, after listening to both historical experts, Dr. Daschuk and Dr. Carlton, it would appear that the histories they present don't really conflict after all. The bulk of their research findings, and my own, are very consistent. Both experts highlighted the colonial agenda, the Northwest Mounted Police and the RCMP's role in this agenda, and some of the harms that it caused Native people. And regardless of whether or not we agree that the Northwest Mounted Police were initially friendly to First Nations, according to these experts, they ultimately came to serve a bigger agenda. Canada's so-called Indian policy, which was focused exclusively on colonizing Indian lands, resources, and peoples. But okay, I hear you. I know some of the comments are going to say, hey, but we're a long way away from those early days of the Northwest Mounted Police. Perhaps some of you think we should cut the RCMP a break. Surely we can't hold the RCMP responsible for what happened in the 1800s, can we? Okay, so let's wipe out those early days. Let's start in the 1900s. If you were in town without a pass, the RCMP had been empowered to disingenuously and knowingly use the sections of the criminal code for prostitution and vagrancy to criminalize people off reserve. So originally they told people to return to the reserve, but later on they would use those sections of the criminal code, I allege illegally, because there's no provision, there's no act, there's no order in council, there's no regulation, there's nothing. All of those would be contrary to treaty anyway, but they didn't even give themselves, you know, the pretense. In 2004, the RCMP formally apologized for the part it played in the Indian residential school system. In 2011, the RCMP appeared before this commission and tendered a report that spelled out what we did. But what did we do? One way to understand what we did is to read the report where we say, among other things, that we were the police of jurisdiction in many areas where schools operated. We were expected to respond to requests to enforce the law, as it then was, which included transporting students to the schools, searching for, apprehending and returning students who ran away from school, locating families who refused to send their children to school and informing them of their obligations. What was the PASS system? What was the residential school system? And what role did the RCMP play legally or otherwise, in suppressing, oppressing, and dispossessing Indigenous peoples of their lands, resources, and sometimes their lives. Join me next week for the third episode of Criminals on Patrol to hear from documentary filmmaker Alex Williams and others to help us answer these questions. In the meantime, you can find additional resources on our website at www.criminalsonpatrol.com. There you will find our COP blog, which provides a summary of each episode and the links to the sources that I used, as well as where you can buy some of the books mentioned, like Dr. Sean Carlton's book, Lessons in Legitimacy, or Dr. James Daschuk's book, Clearing the Plains. 
And if you think this podcast is a valuable resource, there are lots of ways you can help support me in developing it. You can like, comment, and share each episode. You can subscribe to the podcast. You can give five-star ratings and good reviews if you like it. And in order for us to compete with the well-funded multi-million dollar police PR budgets, you can support us financially through the Patreon, Buy Me A Coffee, or Ko-fi apps. Links are in the description box below. I'm Pam Palmiter. Thanks for listening. Thank you.